sermon number four in our Ephesians series, and I had three different people this week tell me they spent a lot of time kind of contemplating last week's sermon, so I'm not sure if they were just buttering me up or they were actually encouraged, but no, that's how to encourage your pastor. And you know what? It's doing the same for me. This wonderful little book has a way of kind of lodging in your heart. So today, if you have your print Bible, we're going to be in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. If you have trouble finding it, just go to the three-quarter mark of your Bible, flip towards the back, and you will find it. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, is really concerned to unite two groups of people. Paul himself was Jewish, and uh, as this church in the churches in Ephesus got going, there was lots of Jewish people already there, and some of them were coming to faith. And so you had Jewish people, and then you had non-Jewish people. They called them Gentiles. And Paul was extremely concerned how these two groups could come together and form one church. When someone uh, in the ancient world before the coming of Jesus wanted to have a relationship with the one true God, when they wanted to know God, they, they would say, who knows the one true God? Well, the Jews do. And so they would travel to Israel, they would find out what that means, and if they were convicted that they would adopt the Jewish faith. And when they did that, they would need to be baptized into the Jewish faith. They would need to adopt the outer symbols like not eating pork, uh, not doing work on the Sabbath for men. It meant undergoing circumcision. And then along comes Jesus, and he upsets the whole apple cart. And he is the one the Jews had been longing for, the Messiah. And he perfectly fulfilled everything Israel was designed to be. And Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law for the Jews. So a disciple, you and I, we aren't required to follow the ceremonial Jewish laws. We don't have to keep meat separate from milk in our houses like the Jews did. We don't need to wear a prayer shawl when we're going to pray with tassels on it. We don't need to abstain from eating shellfish. That is a true blessing of God. Oh, (laughs) crab and prawns, aren't those amazing? So Jesus perfectly fulfilled the ceremonial law. In that sense, it is obsolete. Now, it's still hugely valuable to the Jewish people and their culture and their heritage, but in terms of our standing before God, it is obsolete. Jesus also perfectly fulfilled the civil law of the Jews. They had all kinds of rules about who could buy property and how and when and property markers and all these different things. Again, Jesus fulfilled all that, so in that sense, it's obsolete. And finally, Jesus fulfilled the moral law. We think about the Ten Commandments. They're kind of the heart, but there was lots of other commandments. And Jesus fulfilled those two But the moral law is not obsolete. It's still an amazing guide for us to know what is right and what is wrong. But what changed in Jesus is that is not how you and I are justified before God. We don't have to keep perfectly all of the commandments. Jesus did that on our behalf. So, the church is born... These two groups, the the Jewish people coming to Jesus and the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, 
are all hanging out in the same church. Naturally, there are some major tensions and growing pains. Other parts of the second half of the Bible are totally concerned with this. But in Paul's letter to the churches, he doesn't go to Ephesus in this book. He doesn't go on and on about it. But he certainly expresses his desire that there will be a lasting peace between Jew and Gentile. There will be harmony in the church. And Paul wants harmony between these two groups so badly that he uses the word peace four times in a couple short verses. Verse 14, he says, for Jesus, he himself is our peace. In verse 15, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. In verse 17, he came and preached peace to those who are far away and peace to those who are near. That's a lot of peace Paul wants. And it kind of brought a movie scene to my mind from the Sandra Bullock movie, Miss Congeniality. And if you've never seen that movie, basically she's an undercover cop and the police department realizes something is wrong, something is evil at the Miss America beauty pageant. Something corrupt's happening. So they want to send an officer undercover and they pick her. She's a little rough around the edges. Uh, She doesn't consider herself a beauty queen, all those things. Uh, So she's a little bit of a fish out of water. And at one point, all the contestants on stage have to come and answer the question, what is the one most important thing that our society needs? And we're going to hear it. We're going to dim the lights and play the clip. Definitely world peace. That's easy. World peace. World peace. What is the one most important thing our society needs? That would be harsher punishment for parole violators, Stan. And world peace. Thank you, Gracie Lee. And thank you, Stan. Cheryl Frazier from Rhode Island. Let's see that you. That was charming. Are you drunk? I'm glad you enjoyed it, Marky. Excuse me, I have to go and screw my smile. <laughs> Pretty funny, but the good news is the Apostle Paul is no Miss America contestant saying a platitude, I would dislike world peace. The Apostle Paul looks at the Jews and the Gentiles. And he goes, what reason, what bedrock reason underneath it all do these two very different groups with different cultures, different outlooks, what solid basis is there for uniting them as one in the church? That's what we're going to discover in this sermon. First, though, we need to know the backstory. How did Jews and non-Jews come together in Ephesus? That's a good question. We're going to hear the backstory from the book of Acts, and uh, Don Bowden is very kindly offered to read for me. So this is Acts 19, 1 through 20. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, 
John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread wide, widely and grew in power. It's an amazing account, almost like a speed version of how to plant a church. Paul comes from the interior of the Roman province of Asia, what we think of today as the country of Turkey, comes all the way to the coast, to the biggest city that dominated the region, the city of Ephesus. And immediately, Paul's searching around. He wants to find, are there any followers of Jesus in this town? What he turns up is 12 guys who have really soft hearts to God, but they're just totally uninformed. They know almost nothing. Paul asks them about their baptism, and there's kind of this awkward moment like, uh, what? The Holy Spirit? We didn't even know there's a Holy Spirit. So you can Paul, see Paul kind of go, okay, okay, these guys know nothing. Let's back the train up. So he explains to them about Jesus, all those things. They're baptized in the name of Jesus, and then Paul prays for them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And it's an amazing contrast between John's baptism that these guys had received from John the Baptist and, the, and a Christian baptism. John's baptism was great. It was a moral baptism. It was saying, I've been doing wrong things. I'm repenting of that. I'm stopping and I'm going to try to do the right thing. And John's whole thing was, Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes and we're baptized in him, it's a lot different. It's not just us trying really hard to say, no, no, I'm going to stop doing the bad things in my life. I'm going to try really hard. The difference is the Holy Spirit. In a Christian baptism, the Holy Spirit is the one that allows us to live the Christian life. He gives us the power. And it's amazing. It, 
The Holy Spirit comes on them in power and they prophesy, they speak in tongues. These very visible outward spiritual gifts from the Holy Spirit. And the reason they did that is because it confirmed to these 12 guys, yes, we have received the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul wrote about the significance of the Holy Spirit. Don's going to read those for us. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What was true for those 12 guys receiving the Holy Spirit, having that seal on there, it's like a guarantee. That's as relevant for us 2,000 years later because when life hits the fan, when things are hard, when things are going wrong, we tend to doubt. We go, God, am I a real Christian? Am I really going to spend eternity with you? Am I, am I the real deal? The guarantee, the thing that we can look at, the thing that we feel inside of us is the Holy Spirit. It's a seal. It's a guarantee. Now, when Paul wrote those words in chapter 1, I don't wonder if he wasn't picturing, at least in part, those 12 original guys in Ephesus. The moment they believed, the moment they were baptized, they received the seal of the Holy Spirit. And that's how a church is planted, isn't it? You got to start with a small group. They started with these 12 guys. I'm sure they went home, shared their faith with their families. Pretty soon you had 12 families to start a church. And then Paul does something that he always does when he goes to a new city. He goes straight to the local Jewish synagogue. And he didn't just kind of show up one time. He hung up for three straight months. And it says he argued persuasively for the kingdom of God. He argued them and said, here is Jesus. He perfectly fulfills the first half of the Bible. Every promise that you guys have wanted, Jesus fulfills it. And some of those Jews believe and begin to join the church. Some become obstinate and refuse. And at that point, after three months, Paul says, all right, you've had your chance. Now he moves the whole discussion to this lecture hall of Tyrannus. I was doing some reading this week on the archaeology of Ephesus. This is probably one of the most well-excavated cities of the ancient world. Incredibly well-preserved. A few weeks ago, I showed you the picture of their amphitheater. You can still go in it and sit in it today. Held almost 20,000 people. An incredible accomplishment in the ancient world. You can still see parts of the temples in the city. The temple of Artemis that dominated one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this lecture hall of Tyrannus. They haven't found it yet, but they're confident that they will. Amazing that you can see that stuff from 2,000 years ago. So Paul is gathering these Jews who believe, these unchurched people who you know, these non-Jewish, these Gentile believers. And the gospel starts to take leaps and bounds ahead. God blesses this church. He does an, some incredible miracles. Verses 11 and 12. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. 
so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken in the sick. Their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. The power of the name of Jesus becomes very famous. All these miracles are happening. Then these seven young Jewish dudes get this idea, hey, it seems to work, let's try it ourselves. So they go around trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. It's almost got a comical element to it. In verses 15 and 16, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know about, but who are you? You can almost just see it's like, who are you idiots? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating, they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That's the definition of a bad day. You get beat up by a demon and you have to run out naked and bleeding. Well, as crazy as that is to read about, I've met a lot of people and had conversations with a lot of people that treat Jesus in exactly the same way. They know about him, and when they get in desperate trouble, they call on his name like a magic charm. And I think if I can just kind of pray and use Jesus' name, well then, like magic, he will just fix it all. Problem is, they're kind of like those seven Jewish guys. They don't believe he's the Son of God. They don't believe Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. They haven't turned to him in true repentance and faith. They haven't made him the Lord of their life. They just use the name of Jesus like a magical incantation. And isn't it amazing when God doesn't magically solve all their problems? Interesting. Well, now that we know all of that backstory, real events, real people, God's miracles, it sets us up to hear for God's heart for the church, Jew and non-Jew together, peacefully following Jesus, working together. Don's going to read verses 11 through 13 for us. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul starts with the Gentiles, reminds them where they have come from. They didn't know God. They weren't part of God's people, had no hope as they lived life in the world. And then those glorious words, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Love the way Eugene Peterson translates it in the message. He says, now because of Christ dying that death, shedding that blood, you who are once out of it altogether are in on everything. In the middle of the winter, we've been experiencing lots of rain, lots of snow. It's nice to have a little glimpse back to summer. And this past July, we had an amazing summer day where we had six youth, one university student, two people from the Rock Christian Fellowship do exactly that. They claimed the work of Jesus for themselves. We're going to take a peek this morning at a clip from our summer baptism video last summer.
by getting baptized, I'm giving myself to him for the rest of my life because I know that he is there no matter what I do or what I say. But the one who plants in response to God, letting God's spirit do the growth work in him, harvests a crop of real life, eternal life. that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Something I've been wanting to do for a really long time I've been thinking about and it's just awesome to do it. I feel so happy. I really wanted to take the next step. I wanted to tell the world that I love Jesus. Because of Jesus and his work on the cross, everyone who got baptized in that video went from, as Peterson says, being out of it altogether. Now they are in on everything. Well, Paul continues on in verses 14 to 18, and that's what we're going to dive into. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For, though, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. I've entitled this second point, the TSN Turning Point, and it truly is. It's Jesus' work on the cross, that supreme act of love that put to death the hatred, the hostility between Jew and non-Jew. If it wasn't for Jesus' work on the cross, willingly giving his innocent life so that our hatred, our racism, our division could all be done away with wasn't for Jesus' work on the cross, then that just kind of remains a wish, an ideal dream, but a fanciful one. Good wishes, nothing more. If you think about it, it was the power of Jesus' sacrifice, but it was also his example. If anybody ever in the history of the world had a right to feel hatred and bitterness, it would be Jesus. As he is dying, as he's been nailing, nailed to the cross, they lift that cross up. He's in ultimate agony and suffering. 
And he looks down at that huge crowd that had put him on the cross. But instead of hatred, instead of everything I'm sure he was feeling in his agony, Jesus utters those immortal words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Incredible words. Words that have changed our world. Now we move on to our final three verses, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I love those verses. They paint an extraordinary and inspiring vision of what the church of Jesus Christ should be like. When Christians gather for worship, what it's supposed to look like. No longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household. Paul spoke about Jews and Gentiles living together, and that remains true for us. If a Jewish person walked into Ocean View Community Church, I hope we would welcome the socks off them. If they came to a point of trusting Jesus as the Messiah, then we truly are fellow citizens, members of one household. It's also true of, person, of any person from any walk of life. Today, people in our society kind of kind of identify with a group based on their interests. It's kind of a tribe. People say, well, I'm a super into mountain bike single track. Man, I love that. I love my mountain biking friends. I go for rides all the time. You know what? God envisions mountain bikers as part of his church. There's people that are really into cars. I love to go to amateur race. I love to fix up cars. I love to do body work make them look amazing. I've watched every Fast and Furious movie. I've called my first kid Vin Diesel. <laughs> God envisions car culture enthusiasts as part of the church. People say, oh, I'm super into reading novels and discussing them over cups of well-made coffee. I love a wide variety of genres of literature. As long as they have something important to tell me about the human condition or raise important questions or inspire me to faith. God envisions book club enthusiasts as part of the church. It's unity in diversity. As a local church grows, we want to have more and more of our CGS small groups, our connect, grow, serve groups that incorporate the interests of people. As Ladysmith, Cedar, Saltair, Shemanus continue to grow, as people move here from other parts of the world, we should continue to grow in ethnic diversity. Wouldn't it be amazing if one day we had to start translating everything in our sermon into other languages? I think that would be really cool. Unity in diversity. You know, it's my sincere belief that people who feel same-sex attracted will be warmly welcomed at Ocean View. If two women walk in holding hands together or two men... It's my hope and belief that we would welcome them like anybody else. Our greeters would shake their hands. Our coffee team would put a cup of coffee in their hands. Vince would tell them a corny joke. 
But imagine if they attend for a long time, become convinced Jesus is the one and only path to experience life to the full, salvation for the life to come. They surrender their life to Christ, and they choose out of honor for Christ not to practice homosexuality. Can you imagine if these people felt so embraced and supported at Ocean View Community Church that we esteem them as heroes of the faith? Unity in diversity. Well, this passage ends with a stirring vision of what the local church should be. Ephesians 2, 21 and 22. In Him, the whole building is joined together, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. That's an incredible vision and lofty goal. But sometimes lofty goals are really difficult to achieve in life, aren't they? This week I came across the amazing account of a man named Bill Broadhurst. He ran a 10K race in Omaha, Nebraska. When Bill was in his early 20s, he suffered an aneurysm to the right side of his brain. It resulted in a partial paralysis of his left side of his body. Fast forward many years, and despite the enormous challenges, Bill Broadhurst was determined to enter a 10K race. He had run before his aneurysm, and now he wanted to get back out there. He had a hero in the running world. The man's name was Bill Rogers, and he was a world-class marathoner. And Bill Broadhurst found out that Rogers would be in that 10K race. And he thought, you know what? I've got to go in the same race as the guy I've always looked up to as an incredible marathon runner. So, both of them entered the race. Rogers won the race in 29 minutes. But it took Bill Broadhurst two and a half hours. Along the road, he was teased by children. He became numb. He experienced great pain. They actually took the barriers of the race down. They thought everyone was finished. He had to avoid cars on his way to the finish line. And every step of the way, as it got more and more painful, he felt like quitting. And as the sun began to set on that western Nebraska sky, he could barely make out the finish line. And he approached the end of the race. He was running on nothing but fumes in his tank. And you know who stepped out from the darkness and welcomed that guy across the finish line? It was Rogers, the world champion marathoner who had run that race in 29 minutes. He had waited two and a half hours. And when that man crossed the finish line, he embraced him. And he took the gold medal off his neck. He put it around him and he said, Broadhurst, you're the winner. Take the gold. And you know, when I think about this vision for churches around the world to be places of unity and diversity, of where Jew and Gentile, where people of all different interest groups can come together. We don't have things in common, but in Christ we are united. It's an incredible goal. That holy temple rising in praise to God. But you look back at church history and we seem a lot more 
like a half-paralyzed runner stumbling to the finish line. Think of some of the horrible things that have happened in church history. Martin Luther, the great reformer who did so much good, changed world history. At one point, he wrote an awful paper on Jewish people, how they were always in opposition to the church. They should be shunned and repressed. Awful. An awful blight on an otherwise incredible person. The Crusades of the 10th and the 11th century, an all-time low point for the church. The truth that Jews and Gentiles to be together in one church felt pretty lost when so-called Christian crusaders were in Jerusalem, killing Muslims left and right and Jews right along with them. The Christians in the southern U.S., that used Bible verses to promote slavery and cruelty, demeaned African Americans as less than a human. At these low points in history, the church has looked a lot more like a half-paralyzed runner trying to cross the finish line. But somehow, through it all, mysteriously, just like Rogers, the champion, waiting at the finish line, Jesus is there for us. He's constantly at work. Despite the flaws, despite the sin in the church, church leaders, church members down through history, somehow Jesus has accomplished his purposes. There's been an incredible legacy of goodness, of love, of mercy, of incredible acts of compassion. As one famous pastor described it, nothing on earth has greater potential to change lives, carry out his kingdom work in our communities than our local church. There's nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. No other organization on earth is like the church. Nothing even comes close. As we finish up today, God in Christ is building His church worldwide into a holy temple of the Lord, a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And it's my prayer that every single one of us that calls Ocean View home would be the kind of local church that welcomes every race, every language, every interest group so that in, they can join the rest of us, us imperfect sinners on our journey to look a little more like Jesus every day. Now that is a vision worth fighting for. Amen? Muriel, come on.